You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and how can it be that thou, our God, shouldst die for us? What a wonderful salvation, what a wonderful, majestic God you are. And it is in your word that you are revealed to us, and so we ask that now as we open up your word, that our hearts would be open and soft to receive the things that are in it, that you might teach us by your spirit, and by your grace, and by your power today as we take this time to study the text of your holy Scripture. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to the book of Acts chapter 28. Book of Acts chapter 28. We are coming in for a landing in the book of Acts. You can hear the flaps coming down. The engines have gone into idle and we are we're coasting in. We're almost there. We're on the threshold. You can see the end of the tunnel from here. There is light. We just hope it's not a train. Acts chapter 28, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 29 this morning. And we have been looking at Paul's interaction in the city of Rome with the leading Jews. And having arrived there, chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, waiting for his trial before Nero, the Apostle Paul called all of the leading Jews from the city of Rome to his home. He couldn't go into the synagogues. And he began by introducing himself to them and explaining why it was that he was in chains and why it was that he was waiting for a court date before Nero. And they said to him, they were really open to Paul. They said, well, we haven't heard anything about you. The brethren from Judea haven't sent any letters. Nobody's come here to raise accusations against you. As far as you're concerned, we, we don't, we're unbiased one way or the other. But since you are a rabbi, we would like to know what it is that you believe about this sect called Christianity. So Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse Oh, I need to turn there myself. Beginning at verse 23, they had set a day, and Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. We stopped with verse 24 last time. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Now, friends, that is an incredibly difficult thing for me personally to understand emotionally. I understand intellectually why it is that they would not believe. But here is the Apostle Paul. You could travel the world and not find a more gifted, articulate, experienced, knowledgeable, educated, uh, passionate individual than you could find in the Apostle Paul. And from morning until evening, Luke says, on this appointed day, he was persuading with them, he was reasoning with them, he was explaining to them, he was testifying solemnly to them, pouring all of his passion and all of his emotion and all of his giftedness and his brilliant intellect into that as he opened up Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and from passage after passage after passage, all day long, from sunup to sundown, he was explaining to them in the Scriptures that they held to be authoritative, this person of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. And then we read, some would not believe. And I ask you, how is that possible? How is that possible? How is it possible that they could reject that? 
Now, intellectually, I understand how it's possible. And intellectually, I can even see how it might be something that you and I would expect to happen. We might expect rejection. We might expect disbelief. And intellectually, I'll tell you why. Consider for a moment the human condition itself. Friends, we are born hard-hearted, rebels, enemies of God, and lost. Fallen in Adam's helpless race, we are as hopeless, as helpless, as lost as we possibly can be. Scripture says we are children of wrath even as the rest. We are sons of Satan. We are slaves to Satan. We are slaves to ourself. We are slaves to our sin. We are, are everything about us is affected so much by the fall and by Adam's guilt and by what Adam did that scripture can only say we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not ailing, not terminal, not sick, not failing in our trespasses and sins, but dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. A more hopeless, helpless, pathetic, and desperate situation you could not find than fallen man in his fallen state totally alienated from God, as far away as we can be. And to make matters worse, we love it that way, don't we? Unregenerate man loves it that way. He loves his darkness. He loves his sin. And as sick as this may sound, he even loves the consequences of his sin. As onerous, as hideous, as painful as that might be, he loves that more than he loves righteousness. An unregenerate man has about as much hunger for righteousness as a four-year-old boy does for a bath. doesn't want it at all. doesn't long for it at all. He loves the darkness. He loves his sin. He loves the consequences of his sin. He hates God. He is at enmity with God. He hates righteousness. He hates holiness. He hates God and everything to do with God. Now, to make matters worse, how could it be any worse? I'll tell you how it's worse. The message that cures that situation is the most offensive message that you can possibly imagine. That God would actually take upon Himself flesh and die the most ignominious, painful, shameful, horrible, disgusting death imaginable. A death on the cross. And in public, in public company, in, in social settings, in high society, you didn't even mention crucifixion. You didn't even mention the cross because it was that hideous. And yet that God Himself would take upon Himself flesh and die that death. And then that He would glorify Himself through that torture and death instrument. And then that He would rise from the dead. I mean, we all know dead men don't rise, right? Then to believe that He actually rose again from the dead. And then to believe that all men will eventually rise from the dead. How, how offensive and how stupid and how unsensical and ludicrous a message is that? On top of all of that, it's offensive because the message that we're called to preach is to tell people how dirty, horrible, rotten, desperate, hopelessly lost sinners they are. That offends people, doesn't it? Try taking that out to the, the curb after church or into the restaurant and just say that to your waitress and see how she comes. She's, she's going to be offended. You're going to have to give her a big tip to make up for offending her like that because it's a horribly offensive message. And then on top of all of that, to make matters even worse... God has determined that the saving of the soul would be through the preaching of the cross. So He takes the most hideous, nonsensical, offensive message possible and He packages it in the most unattractive package possible, which is preaching, and He says, I'm going to use that foolish vehicle and that foolish message to save people who utterly are helplessly lost and cannot save themselves. That's a desperate situation, isn't it? Now we look at all of that and we say, it is no wonder, is it not, intellectually, 
that lost people reject the gospel. What else would you expect when that's the situation, that's the condition? Because humanly speaking, the salvation of one single sinner is an absolute impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. So what is needed? What is needed is a gracious, powerful, sovereign work of God upon the sinner to change all of that that I've just spent the last three minutes telling you about. All of that has to be changed by the grace of God. That's how marvelous and that's how matchless is the grace of God. Intellectually, I understand why people reject the gospel. But emotionally, listen, emotionally, it tears our hearts up, doesn't it? Because all of us have people in our lives and all of us know people. Some of you have brothers and sisters who don't know the Lord. Some of you have parents who don't know the Lord. Some of you have children and grandchildren who do not know Christ. And that tears your heart up, doesn't it? Some people, even amongst our own congregation in years past and even today, have have spouses who are alienated from God and still have not trusted Christ for salvation. Last week, I wasn't here last week because I was preaching at a, a community-wide uh, Sunday service up in Creston, British Columbia. It was in a, a hockey rink and there were about 400, 450 people there. Evangelistically speaking, in Southern Baptist numbers, that's about 1,200 to 1,300 people. But as far as actual body count goes, that's about 400 to 450 people. Some of you get that on the way home. So about 400 to 450 people there. Afterwards, I went over by the door of the church or the, the hockey rink, and I was standing there. About two dozen people came up. And one lady came up, and she handed me a business card so that I would remember who she is and so that I could contact her. Her email address was on the bottom of the card. And she said, I would, and with, on the verge of tears, literally, she said, I would ask you to pray for my husband. Then she went on to tell me this horrible story. Now what had happened is I just preached Acts 4 verse 12. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And for 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, I did nothing but explain the gospel. That that's it. Salvation and none other. I preached sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And I got all of that out and got done. I prayed. I went to the back and she came up. And I think that she was obviously stirred in her conscience and in her heart for her spouse because of everything that I had said. And on the verge of tears, she said, I want you to pray for my husband. And she went on to tell me the story. Years ago, he had made a profession of faith in Christ and trusted Christ for salvation. But then as time progressed in their marriage, he started to get further and further from the Lord, so much so that in the conversations that he had with people in their home, he stopped talking about Jesus and just started talking about a lot of self-help garbage and tripe and all of these things that go with it about how you need to better your life and it can happen through the church. And she kept trying to point him back to Jesus, but his alienation kept growing further and further from the Lord and stronger and stronger to the point when he dropped her off Last Sunday morning for that service, he told her, I said, he said, I know what you're going in there. You're going to go in there and you're going to hear that, that God created the world, that man fell, that Jesus became a man and died on a cross and rose again for you. And I know the whole story. That's all you're going to hear. And I don't even know why you go to these services anymore. It's a waste of your time. And now he's become a mocker and a hater of God and of Christianity. Sad, isn't it? That man doesn't know the Lord. It's not that he was saved at one time. And now he's fallen away. And now he's a blasphemer that he was elect and then not elect, saved and then unsaved. God loves me. He loves me not. It's none of that. What will happen? You had a false convert who for a period of time showed quote-unquote fruit in the gospel and in the Christian life. And now he has fallen so far from the Lord. He's a blasphemer and a mocker and a hater and a vile abuser of everything Christian. And that's sad, isn't it? You and I know friends and people like that, don't we? You know people like that. You know people who aren't saved, who have rejected the gospel. Intellectually, we understand why, but it doesn't make it any easier when it's somebody that we love, somebody that we're related to, 
or a really close friend. Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul was dealing with people who rejected the gospel. And that's where we left off last week with verse 24. So we're going to pick it up in verses 25. The emphasis of all of this encounter with Paul in Rome is not on the Christian population in Rome. It's not on those who believe and accept the gospel and trust Christ and are saved and end up uh, adding to the church in Rome. The emphasis, and this is interesting, the focus of Luke in these closing verses of the book of Acts is not on belief, it's not on Christians, it is on the rejection of the gospel, and it is on people's unbelief. That is what Luke focuses on in verses 25 to 29. And you might say, well, that's kind of a negative message to end the book on. Not really. You'll see that there's actually a positive element to this rejection and to this unbelief when we get done today. But we're going to see in verse 25 their rejection of the gospel. In verses 26 and 27, we're going to look at the reason for their rejection. And then in verses 28 and 29, the results of that rejection. The rejection of the gospel, the reason for that rejection, and then the results of the rejection. So let's begin reading, because we didn't for the Scripture reading. Verse 25 through 29. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute amongst themselves. We're going to notice, first of all, in verse 25, the rejection of the gospel. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we just mentioned it in passing last time in sort of closing. We looked at that rejection. I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at why it is that they rejected the gospel in verses 26 and 27. But I do want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice the rift, the division that existed and that became apparent in this audience. Paul is explaining the gospel to this group of Jewish leaders in the city of Rome. And as as the day wears on and as he goes to text after text after text, you, you notice something happening. Some of them are joining Paul. Some of them are being persuaded. Others are not being persuaded. They're becoming a little bit more hostile to the point where in verse 25 we see that they did not agree amongst themselves. And the people that are not agreeing are these Jewish leaders. You have these guys who are saying, you know, I think Paul is making a good point. I see that in the text of Scripture. I can see in Psalm 22 the piercing of the hands and the the spear and the casting of lots for the garment. I can see in Isaiah 53 the suffering servant and Micah 5 the virgin birth and all of these things about Bethlehem, all the prophecies and the types and the fulfillment of Christ. I see it. I believe it. And others were saying, I don't believe it. I don't agree with that interpretation of the Old Testament. I think Paul's a charlatan and there began to be this divide where some believed and others rejected it. There was a rift that existed. Friends, this happened in city after city after city that Paul visited. You see it in Acts chapter 13. He went into the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and he preached the gospel and they said, hey, will you come back next week? Paul said, sure. The next Sabbath day, the whole city came out. That's Luke's sort of a hyperbole for saying this place was just packed, standing room only. And the Apostle Paul began to teach and he spent a long time doing this and the Jews began to blaspheme Paul, blaspheme Jesus. And at that point, Paul said, all right, fine. Your blood is on your own hands. You have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I'm turning to the Gentiles. And Luke says, the Gentiles rejoiced, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life 
believed. Acts 13, verse 48. So you have this divide even amongst the Jews. You have this divide in city after city where some would follow after Paul and others would become hostile toward the guard, uh, to the gospel and they would become hardened and they would begin opposition against Paul and his ministry. And we followed that all the way through the book of Acts. And here we see it in Rome again in the last verses. Some would not believe. The second thing I want you to notice, and this should be an encouragement to you. Do you notice that even Paul could not convince everybody? Friends, I don't know about you, but man, that just lifts my heart right out of everything. Even Paul could not convince everybody. You could not find a Jew who could debate other Jews like Saul of Tarsus. No, no, no. You didn't find rabbis like Paul on every street corner. This guy had been trained by Gamaliel, one of the most gifted, talented, experienced, knowledgeable, able men that you could find anywhere. And he would go into a town, and in many cases, only a small number would believe. Why? It's not that Paul wasn't trying. It's not that Paul wasn't gifted. It's not that Paul couldn't get the gospel right. It's not that God wasn't working. But what is the problem? The problem is all of the obstacles that I told you about at the beginning. Even Paul could not get everybody to believe. Why? The majority rejected. Why did the majority reject? Because Paul wasn't a gifted communicator? has nothing to do with it whatsoever, friends. You and I seek to persuade men, all the while understanding that it is God who persuades men. And so if we're rejected, and if we're, if we're abused, and if we're hated for it, and if the majority of the people say no, that's what you and I are called to expect. You can't expect to do better than Paul. Because after all, all of the persuading, and all of the convincing, and all of the reasoning, all of the results of that rests ultimately in the hand of God. You and I are just responsible to do what we can do, and leave the results to God. Even Paul couldn't convince everybody. So that's the rejection of the gospel. Second, I want you to notice the reason for that rejection of the gospel. And this takes us to verse, the end of verse 25. Or verse 25. They did not agree with one another. They began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. So Jews are starting to sort of trickle out of Paul's house. And he just says, hold on a second. I got one more admonition, one more word of encouragement, one more sort of exhortation for you, if you will. And then he quotes Isaiah. And as they're leaving, Paul's wanting them to leave with one last thought, one last scripture passage ringing in their minds. If you're going to turn from here, and if you're going to reject your Messiah and reject your Gospel, then these are the last words I want you to hear. One parting word. And what is it that Paul lays on them as they're going out his door? Verse 26 and 27 is a doozy. I love it. You know why I love it? This is what Paul wants them going to bed at night thinking about. Last week when I preached in Creston, you know what I wanted people? I wanted to have ringing in people's minds as they left there? There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. I repeated that so many times that people who had never heard that verse before, they came in there, were had it memorized by the time they left. Why? Because I want that ringing in their ears when they go to sleep at night. This is what Paul wants ringing in these people's ears as they leave his house and they go about their way and they lie down in bed at night. They want some meditating on the words of Isaiah. Now before we turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 to see what it is, that Paul is quoting, I want you to notice a phrase that Paul uses. Paul says in verse 25, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Now there's two significant things about that. Listen, you could not in the New Testament find a better illustration or example of Paul's belief in the Old Testament prophet's inspiration than what you find right there in those words. What does Paul say? It was the Spirit of God who spoke through Isaiah, the prophet. Paul doesn't just say, Isaiah said. 
Paul says the Spirit of God spoke through Isaiah. And what Paul is doing is he is affirming his belief in the inspiration of the prophet Isaiah. And he is saying, yes, Isaiah wrote this book. Isaiah said these words. Isaiah wrote them down for us. But it was the Spirit of God who was speaking these words through Isaiah the prophet. By the way, that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is looking at the the book of John or a book from John or a book from Peter or a book from Paul and being able to say, this is his own vocabulary, his own style, his own approach, his own arguments, his own mind, emotions, expressions, everything that I read in the text of this book. But it is the product of the Spirit of God who moves through these men to produce in the end the Holy Spirit's words. So there's dual authorship going on. You understand that? It's not just Isaiah. It's the Spirit of God speaking through Isaiah. And Paul wants these Jews to know, Paul wants these Jews to know, you reject this and you're rejecting the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of God spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, here's the second significant thing to notice. He spoke through Isaiah the prophet to their father, fathers saying, and then what he quotes is the words of this God whose glory filled the temple. Who was it that spoke those words? Jehovah God. And Paul says, those are the words of the Holy Spirit. So he teaches us not only the inspiration of Scripture, but also the deity of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is God. Because he quotes God and he says, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. I could preach a whole sermon just on that introduction to that quotation from the book of Isaiah. But I'm resisting temptation so that we can get to the end of verse 29 today. So look at the quotation in its original context. Turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And keep your finger or it a tab or a marker because we are coming back to the book of Acts. Isaiah chapter 6. Now I want to set up the context for you. I know the rain that you're hearing is distracting your mind and you're thinking, did I leave my windows rolled down in my car? But try and focus on Isaiah chapter 6 for a second. Now, this is a long quotation, so I want you to see these words in their original context. Get an understanding of that meaning and then we'll jump back into Acts 28 and see why it's significant. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. He's writing toward the end of the, the existence of the nation of Judah. He is writing to the southern kingdom. The first five chapters are all about the sin of that nation in their rejection of God, their rejection of, of the law of God and the word of God and the prophets of God and why they are condemned and the judgment that's coming. It's five fascinating, by the way. If you want to read something good, go home and read that with passion out loud. Five of the most fascinating chapters in all the prophets about the rejection of God and what's coming on the nation because they did that. So he gets to the end of chapter 5 and the emphasis has been on the unholiness and the unrighteousness of the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 6 you get this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1 of chapter 6, Isaiah sees this Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the train of his robe is filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their eyes and with, and with their mouth they're shouting out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why the repetition three times of the word holy? What is the nation? Unholy. And so all of chapter 6 is about this grand vision of God and all of His holiness, this unspeakable, unseeable, transcendent, deep, eternal holiness. This is what Isaiah sees. This God who can only be described as holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah is saying this. And with such power and authority and volume, they utter these words that the thresholds shake 
And the temple, he sees this vision in the temple, and it is filling with smoke. And then Isaiah says, Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm loosed. My knees are knocking together. My joints are out of joint. I am undone. I have, I have melted like the wicked witch of the West in a bucket of water. I am absolutely on the floor undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Why did Isaiah see that? Because he saw the holiness of God and the first thing that comes to his mind, my sinfulness. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a sinful people, a people of unclean lips. And he confesses that there is contrition, there is humility in the presence of this most holy God. And the angel comes over with the coal from the fire and in a symbolic way he puts the fire, the coal, to Isaiah's mouth and he says, you've been cleansed from your sin, your guilt and your sins have been forgiven and removed. You're clean in the sight of God. All of that is a result of his own contrition, his confession, and his awe at the holiness of God. And then the very first question that the Lord asks is in verse 9, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. The Lord asks, Who am I going to send? Now did he ask that because he didn't know? The Lord asked that because he didn't know? No, the Lord knew. He's giving Isaiah the opportunity, now having been cleansed from his sin, to say, I'll be your man. I'll be your man. I can't see a vision like that. I can't see who God is without being one to just jump forward and run at this opportunity to go. He saw the holiness of God, and God said, Who are we going to send? Who shall we have go? Isaiah says, I'll go. And the Lord says, fine, go. Verse 9. And this is where the prophet, the passage in Acts picks up. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And verses 11, 12, and 13 all have to do with a judgment that was coming. So Isaiah has not changed his emphasis of chapters 1 to 5. There's a theme in chapters 1 to 5, and it is the sin of the nation, the judgment upon the nation because of their sin. All of this is coming, and Isaiah says it's in the midst of all of that sin that I saw this holy vision of God. I confessed my sin, and God said, I want to send you. Isaiah said, I'll go, and the Lord said, go. And then he commissions him in verses 9 to 10. Probably some of the most familiar verses to you out of the book of Isaiah, except for probably Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 40 and some other passages like that, probably some of the most familiar to you because they are quoted six times in the New Testament. Six times this passage is alluded to. It's an important and significant passage. Three times the Lord Jesus quoted Isaiah to speak of the hardness of the hearts of the Jews in His day who heard His words and saw Him there in the flesh and would not believe. Once John alludes to these words in John chapter 12, I think it's verse 40, to speak of the rejection of the nation of Israel and why they would not believe. And then Paul quotes it twice. Once in Romans chapter 11, verse 8, he alludes to it. And once here at the end of the book of Acts, we see it coming from his mouth. Significant passage of Scripture used six times in the New Testament. It's very, very important that you and I understand what's going on in Isaiah chapter 6 and that you and I understand what is what is the Lord saying to Isaiah. So let me break it down, and I'll give you four elements that are in these words that I can sort of, I sort of tried to crystallize, and there may be more, but let's just look at these four. First of all, there is an element of rebuke in these words. Isaiah, I want you to go to the nation, keep on speaking, but do not hear. That's what you're supposed to tell them. I'm going to keep talking, but you're not going to hear. I'm going to keep giving you truth, but you're not going to see it. Now that's a rebuke to the nation, is it not? If I were to say to you, I'll give the message, you don't understand it. 
Now, you would either think I'm arrogant or you're ignorant. Or maybe both. Could be both of those. But if I were to say that, it would be a rebuke to you. Keep on listening, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, don't see. Keep on hearing, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna get it. Your eyes and your ears become dull. It's a rebuke. It's intended to be a rebuke to the nation. Because they had rejected truth and rejected truth, the very first words out of Isaiah, out of God's mouth to Isaiah is, you're gonna go, and here's what you're gonna tell them. Keep on listening, but don't hear. Keep on seeing, but don't see. It's a rebuke to them. A words of rebuke there. Second, there's an element of judgment there. There's an element of judgment. I want you to look at verse 10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. He not only rebukes them, but what the Lord says to Isaiah is, I'm going to send you to these people, and you're going to preach, and you're going to teach, and you're going to proclaim, and you're going to prophesy. But Isaiah understands something. Your ministry and your words and my words are going to harden the hearts of these people. It is going to render their eyes dim. It is going to render their ears dull. It is going to render their hearts hardened. There's a rebuke here to those people because they had hardened their heart. But there is an element of judgment in that God is saying, I'm going to harden their hearts. I wish I had more time to develop this. But what you see going on in the book of Isaiah is the same thing you see going on with Pharaoh. It says in the book of Exodus, in Psalm 105 and in the New Testament, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now you say, oh, 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 hey, whoa. But it says Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God. You're right. Four times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God. Fourteen times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now which is it? It's both. It's both. Pharaoh heard truth. Pharaoh said, no, not for me. God said, all right. Harden your heart. Pharaoh got truth. Pharaoh said, nope, not for me. God said, okay, hardening your heart. Friends, this hardening of the heart is not something that God does just so He can justly damn you. The hardening of the heart is a judicial act of God. It is in itself a judgment. Just as God has the right to judge people by sending locusts, pestilence, disease, illness, death, a sword, a nation, any other means He wants, He has the ability and the right and He does judge people by hardening their hearts toward truth. Both are happening. Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and Paul says in Romans chapter 9, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and in case you have a problem with that, God really doesn't care what you think about it, because God hardens whom He wills, and He has mercy on whom He wills. It's His desire. And God is saying through Isaiah, you're going to go, you're going to teach the people, but Isaiah don't expect big results, because it's going to harden their hearts. It's going to be a judgment of God upon those people because they rejected truth. So they rejected truth and God says, okay, as a judgment, I'm going to harden your heart. And they say, okay, well, we're going to reject more truth. And God says, okay, I'll harden your heart more. You become more blind, more deaf, more hardened to the truth as a judicial act of God, a judgment upon the nation for their sin. There's an element of rebuke. There is an element of judgment in this hardening. Third, there is an element of warning. This is where you and I ought to take note. Friends, the Word of God always does one of two things. The Word of God, when it is preached, when it is taught, when it is heard, always has one of two effects. It either hardens the heart or it softens the heart. One of the two will happen. None of you is neutral after leaving here on a Sunday morning. None of you. None of you walk in here the same as you 
or walk out of here the same as when you came in. Because through the teaching of the Word in Sunday school and the preaching of the Word on Sunday morning, something happens to your heart. It's either softened or it's hardened. Almost imperceptibly. Such a small amount, but one of the two happens. What determines whether your heart is hardened or softened? It is determined by your response to the Word of God when you hear it. One of the saddest things in the world is that there are Christians, it happens in this church, happens in churches all across this country, happens in churches all over the globe, who can sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and hear the Word preached, hear the Word taught, sing the Word, hear the Word read, and walk away hardened by the Word of God. You know why? Because when they're rebuked for their sin, they justify it and they make excuses and they're apathetic and they ignore it and they say, I'll deal with that later. And they walk on and they walk out the door and their heart's just a little harder than when they came in. But when you and I hear the Word of God and we soften our hearts and we humble ourselves and we confess our sin and we approach it with contrition, God looks on that and it serves to soften our hearts. Friends, I'm far softer today than I was 10 years ago. I hope you are too. There's a warning here. Listen, kids, let me talk to the kids for a second. Parents, nudge your kids, wake them up so they'll listen. Let me talk to the kids for a second. Just because you grow up in a Christian home and you have Christian parents and Christian grandparents and you come here and you hear the Word of God taught in your Sunday school class and you get it at Awana and you come here on Sunday mornings and you hear the Word of God preached from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, don't think for a second that you can be neutral to the Word of God and do what you want with it. Because if you trifle with sin, If you continue to go your own path and you do not soften your heart and humble yourself before the Word of God, by the time you get to be a teenager, you will find that your heart is hardened to Scripture. Now, teenagers, let me talk to you for a second. Don't think for a moment that you can come to Wednesday nights and you can participate in Awana and you can serve the Lord and you can come here and attend the teen Sunday school class and the preaching of this Word and walk away here the same as when you came in. If you continue, to, if you persist in your sin to walk your own way, to stroke your own ego, to do things your own way, follow the desires of your flesh, and I tell you this from personal experience, you will walk away hardened. And you can say all you want in your mind, well, I'll wait and I'll wait till I get married, and then I'll get things straightened out with God. Then I'll get things sorted out. I'll wait till then when I'm ready to settle down with a wife and start having kids. Then I'll get solid. Then I'll straighten out. Then I'll repent. Then I'll get right with God. You're going to get out of your home and you're going to get to be in your early 20s and that opportunity is going to come and you're going to find that as a judgment upon you for your rejection of His truth, God is so hard in your heart that you cannot return. You cannot return and you'll perish in your sin. Now parents, kids, nudge your parents, wake them up so listen to what I'm saying. Parents, you can do the same thing. You can sit here Sunday after Sunday and hear the Word of God preached and take it in on Christian radio, and take it in through tapes and CDs, and read books all about the Word of God. But if you will not soften your heart, and you will not turn to the Lord, and you do not deal with it with contrition and obedience, your heart will be hardened. I have sat with people in my office and given them biblical truth, and had them get up and turn around and walk out hardened. you got to ask, how did they get so hard? When did that start? It didn't start yesterday. How do you get to that point where you walk away from truth? You walk away from the Lord and you say, I love my sin and I'm going to stay in it and I'm not going to deal with it before the Lord. That doesn't happen overnight. You know how that happens? Months and months and months and years of sitting under the Word of God and keeping it at arm's length. Some of you sitting here this morning are unbelievers and you've never trusted Christ for salvation. You come here and you hear the gospel preached and we preach it and we celebrate it in communion and you don't want to turn to the Lord because it would involve abandoning your sin and giving up your unrighteousness and softening your heart and humbling your proud self before a holy God. And you resist that and you reject that. And I'll tell you something, there's a warning here. 
The judgment of God upon you may be the fact that if you resist truth and you resist the gospel, you're hardening your heart, and friend, you will get to the point where you cannot turn from your sin. That is the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah. Friends, there's an element of rebuke in these words. There's an element of judgment in these words. There's an element of warning. Fourth, there is an element of encouragement in these words to Isaiah. He's seen a vision, most holy God, the the smoke, the seraphim, the holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah would, I mean, after you see a vision like that, you got to be thinking in your mind, at least I would be, because I'm a proud, uh, I'm a proud, rebellious, arrogant sinner, just like the rest of you. I would be thinking in my mind, wow, God must be preparing me for something big. I've seen this vision. I mean, after seeing a vision like this, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get myself a stage, some television cameras, a big crib. I'm going to buy myself a nice car, a Rolex watch, a couple suits, a bottle of hair gel. I'm ready for the big time. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the big time thing. There must be a, we must be on the verge of a national revival of the likes of which we haven't seen in our nation's history. And I'm going to be the prophet. I'm going to be the one who gets to bring it to the people. And God says, no, 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 Isaiah. Don't expect big fruit, my friend. You're going to preach. And he says it just like he does to Isaiah or to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You're going to preach. You're going to teach. You're going to proclaim my word. They're going to harden their hearts and the number of conversions is going to be nothing compared to the rejection and the suffering and the humiliation that you're going to experience because you've taught my truth. So don't expect a lot of fruit, Isaiah. You say, what's encouraging about that? That's tremendously encouraging when you go out and give your first sermon and all 100 people walk away unchanged. You can go back and say, that's what the Lord told me back in the temple in the vision. He told me not to expect this. I'm, I'm successful. I've been successful. How can I be successful when not one person was converted? I had a hundred people there. And I preached the truth and not one of them was converted. You clap your hands and say, I was a success. How was that a success? Because a hundred people were hardened. And that's what God was intending to do through that proclamation of the truth. To bring judgment upon them because they will not obey the truth. And they will not come to Christ. Successful. These are words of encouragement. Words of rebuke, judgment, warning, and encouragement. Now you're starting to say, Is this sermon from the book of Isaiah or the book of Acts? Are we ever going to finish the book of Acts? Yes, turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Now, I want to give you a note of of why we just did what we did by going back into the book of Isaiah. Friends, this is how you study Scripture. You come across a quotation or allusion in the New Testament. You don't just say, well, I think that means this. You go back to where it came from and you say, what does that mean in its original context? Let's get the understanding and the, and the grappling of all of that. Then we can jump forward to the New Testament and say, okay, why did the author use this quotation? What about this quotation was appropriate that the author or the speaker said this on this occasion? That's what we've done. You've got to understand Isaiah 6 before you understand why Paul quotes it in Acts chapter 28. So here's what's going on in Acts chapter 28. They're leaving and Paul says, one last thing I want ringing in your ears when you go to sleep tonight. And here it is, my Jewish brethren. If you reject the Messiah and you walk away from here having been, having been exposed to all of this light, I want you to understand something. It will result in the judgment of God upon you and you ought to be warned because rightly did Isaiah speak to your fathers saying your hearts are hard and you've rejected truth and I'm going to judge you because of it. And Paul quotes that and they would hear Paul saying that and they would say, Paul is telling us our hearts are hard, our eyes are blinded and we're just like the Jews in Isaiah's day and we have rejected light and rejected truth. I've warned my children. I don't know if they remember this because it was back a while back, a couple years ago that I last uttered these words to them. But I have warned my children. I have told them. With as much light as you get in my home, in our daily devotions, our study of Scripture, 
preaching of the Word on Sunday, teaching in Sunday school, Awana, all the verses that you've memorized, with all of the light that you get in our home, if you reject that light and you reject Jesus Christ and you will not turn to Him for salvation, then I want you to understand I will be the first one to stand up on Judgment Day and bear swift witness against your soul and I will rejoice in the just punishment of God in your eternal damnation because you ought to have turned. That's hard to say, isn't it, as a parent? Friends, that's the truth. You reject light? Oh. The brighter the light you reject, the worse is your judgment. Harsh and heavy. And God will be glorified in that damnation because you reject that light. There's absolutely no excuse under heaven for rejecting that light. And God holds us culpable for that. And that's what Paul is saying to the Jews. I've given it all to you. Moses, Psalms, prophets. You have no excuse. You walk away from here, the judgment of God will be upon you unless you turn from your sin and embrace that Messiah. What was the reason for their judgment? For their judgment? Or for their rejection, sorry. What was the reason for their rejection? It was because they had been warned and they had rejected truth and they had blinded their own eyes and God had judicially hardened those people and thus they rejected the gospel. And God is absolutely just in doing that. Now let's look at the results of that rejection. First of all, the rejection. Second, the reason for their rejection. The results of their rejection. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute amongst themselves. You probably noticed in your Bible that verse 29 uh, is has a note by it, a footnote or a marginal note of some sort that says this verse is not contained in the oldest of manuscripts. It's very likely that it could have been part of, of Luke's original manuscript. It's also possible that it might have been a scribal note that worked itself into the text. And so we have it as part of our Bible today. It really is not terribly significant because all it is is a restatement of verse 25 because he simply says that they left disagreeing, which he's already told us in verse 25. The emphasis on it is Paul's words in verse 28 where Paul says, Therefore, since you've rejected this salvation, let it be known to you that I'm going to the Gentiles. This was Paul's pattern. Into the city... Preach to the Jews. The Jews reject. They're hostile. They blaspheme. He turns to the Gentiles and the Gentiles embrace salvation. And so when we start out the book of Acts back in chapter 1, we see that the church was entirely composed of Jews, not a Gentile among them. Then we have this steady stream, this trickling stream of Gentiles starting to fall into the stream of salvation history. And you have the, the Samaritans getting saved in chapter 8. Cornelius and or the, the Ethiopian eunuch getting saved in chapter 8. Cornelius getting saved in chapter 10. And then Paul starts a church and becomes part of a church in Antioch. And there is this stream of Gentiles trickling into salvation history that be, then becomes a, a downpour of Gentiles coming into salvation history. So by the time we get to 60 AD and the end of the book of Acts, the church is largely Gentile, mostly Gentile compared to the Jewish believers, the number of Jewish believers. Why was it that the church is composed of mostly Gentiles and only a few Jews when it started out as exclusively Jewish with no Gentiles? How did that transition happen? It happened because of what? The Jewish rejection of the gospel. And you get to the end of the book of Acts, you say, that's why it is the way it is. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has been a Gentile body of believers, largely. Not only, there have been Jews, but nothing compared to Gentiles. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 11. The Jews have rejected God, but does that mean that God has cast off His people? No, 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 no. No, no, may it never be. No, Paul says, but 
Their rejection has resulted in your salvation. That's what Paul says here at the end of the book of Acts. They've rejected it, but I'm taking it to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles embrace it. Oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unfathomable are his ways and his and his his paths, past finding out that a few people's rejection could result in our salvation. Unbelievable. Now, God is so gracious and so good and so loving that that kind of rejection could result in his eternal glory and the salvation of countless millions of people to the praise of his glorious grace. And you'll notice we got two verses left. I promise you, next Lord's Day, we will finish Acts chapter 28. I didn't tell you we'd finish the book of Acts. I told you I'd finish Acts chapter 28. You say, how can that be? And you come back next week and we'll see what I mean. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your matchless, eternal, and marvelous grace. How good you are to us. Thank you, Father, that our hard and wicked and hardened hearts and our blind eyes and our deaf ears were opened up through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God by which you extended that saving grace to us. Thank you for granting us repentance. Thank you for turning us from our wicked ways. And thank you for giving us the faith to believe in a Savior who gave his life in our stead. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this light. And God, I pray that we would not harden our hearts and turn from the living God, but that we would continually purpose to soften our hearts and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling in obedience to Scripture, that we might be sanctified by your truth and by your grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.